Welcome to the Compass Church Podcast with Pastor Tim Jacobs, a ministry of Compass Church with your Arizona. Join us now as we look into God's Word to be challenged and changed. How many want to hear about Jesus this morning? How many want to hear about who He is and what He's done for you? Raise your hand, yeah. And so we're going to hear about that, and it'll be great application to a number of things. First of all, somebody who follows the way of Jesus and has a humble attitude is going to want to be in His Word. We're going to look at the Word. We're going to dig into the Word today. They're going to want to be in a community of others who are going the way of Jesus. And so you're part of the church and a connection group to get in a small group where you can really let down your hair and build relationships. That's there. And then the inside out where the church leaves the building and goes out in the community and serves. And so you're going to see how this message applies to all of that. Because today we're beginning a brand new series, even though Tim isn't here, don't tell him. No, I'm just kidding. He asked me to do this. So we're beginning a new series that's called Upside Down, Inside Out. And my message is, you've got to give up to go up. If you have your Bibles or if you have your iPad or smart, uh, smartphone, turn with me to Philippians chapter 2. That's going to be our text today. Philippians chapter 2, and I'm going to go ahead and do a uh, short prayer, and then we're going to s- just launch right in. Father, thank you for this gorgeous day here in Goodyear, Arizona, and for this wonderful church here at Compass. And I just pray that uh, you would bless this church, bless Tim and Judy, Dave and Gabe, all of the staff, all the leaders, all the servants, all of the people here, Lord. And I pray you just open our hearts and open our minds to see who Jesus is, to get a better understanding of what he's done on our behalf, and that we would go and follow him, that we would be molded in his image, that our attitudes would be aligned to his mindset. We ask this in Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen. Charles lived in the south. And he loved a girl, and so he asked her to go with him on a picnic. And she said, yes, she's a southern girl. And so she put on this big flowery dress, and Charles put on his best suit, and they left for this fancy picnic in the park. They drove to the park, and Charles climbed into his rowboat, and he rowed them across the lake to a little island. He spread out this beautiful picnic this, on this blanket, And it was a hot day that day, about 95 degrees. But unlike Arizona, it wasn't a dry heat. It was the south. Anybody ever been there? 90% humidity. So by the time they reach this island, Charles is just drenched in sweat. And she says, Charles, you forgot the ice cream, Charles, and you promised we'd have ice cream. So Charles goes back to the boat. He rows across the lake. He picks up the ice cream at the store. He rows all the way back across the lake. He brings the ice cream. Now it's kind of melted. It's dripping. And she smiles and she says, Charles, where's the chocolate syrup? Now, let me just do a little poll here this morning. How many men in this congregation 
would go back for the chocolate syrup, raise your hand, I'll pray for you if, you, if I see one, I see two. <laughs> but Charles loved this girl. So he rose back, he gets the chocolate syrup, but about halfway back, he comes to his senses. And he writes about it in his own biography a few years later, and he says, come to think about it, I don't know how that girl ever got back. Charles left her. Good for you, Charles. He just left her right there. And as a result, we've all benefited from this actual true story because his name was Charles Evanrude. And that day he decided there's got to be a better way. So he invented the outboard motor that particular day. Because Charles said enough is enough. And the point is, whenever someone is demanding their own way, everybody else suffers. Relationships suffer. We suffer and the joy is siphoned out of the relationship. We live in a nation that basically has that same attitude as that Southern Belle who says, Charles, you don't meet my expectations. Instead of looking within ourselves and saying, how can I be the best version of me that God has made, how can I be my best for the glory of God? How can I serve others? And see, this was the problem going on at this church at Philippi. We call it Philippians. They're the people in Philippi. It was a Roman colony. Paul's writing this letter from prison. And you'd think it'd be a kind of a dirge letter, a downer, but it's actually the theme of the book is joy. And one of the things that can siphon out your joy and rob you of your joy is disunity and fractures within a work environment, within your marriage, within your home, within a church. And they actually had two women who were at odds with one another. And they're arguing and they're disputing and there's not unity. And as a result, Paul writes this section in chapter 2. And he basically says, if you found any love, if you found any consolation, in Jesus, in what I've done, Paul's own example, then please do this, please do this. And we start with verse three here. We start with verse three. In verse three, we see Paul's admonition to them. And he says, basically, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, rather in humility, value others above yourselves not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interest of others. So that's kind of the theme we're going to look at this morning. We're going to look at how to put others above ourselves, and we're going to see the example Paul uses of Jesus. Now it's interesting. When you talk about the Christian faith, when you talk about a series like we're in, upside down, inside out, Lewis Carroll had a very famous book, became a play, Alice in Wonderland, a movie. And he did a sequel to that called Through the Looking Glass. And in this particular book, Alice steps through the mirror in her living room into a world that's the opposite of everything. So everything's backwards. Alice tries to go forward, and every time she does, she ends up back where she started. Alice tries to go left, and she ends up right. She tries to go down, she ends up, she tries to go fast, and it's actually slow. Let me ask you, any Seinfeld fans with us this morning? Seinfeld fans? Yeah. 
I didn't actually watch it when the series was live, you know, going all those years, but actually got into it after it was over, all the reruns. And probably my favorite episode is called Opposite. You remember that one? George Costanza decides, he has this breakthrough. I'm gonna go against my natural instincts and that will be the right thing to do, opposite of what I would normally do. So George, who's kind of shy, self-conscious about himself, he sees this beautiful woman in the restaurant. He's sitting there with Jesus, or with Jesus, with, <laughs> that would be something, wouldn't it? With Jerry. <laughs> and so he walks up to this beautiful woman. Her name's Victoria. He doesn't know that yet. But she, he says, excuse me, I couldn't help but notice that you were looking in my direction. This is bold for George. And the woman says, oh yes, I was. You ordered the exact same lunch as me. George took a deep breath and he said, my name is George. I'm bald, I'm unemployed, and I live with my parents. And he was just so bold about it, she came back and she said, hi, I'm Victoria. You know, that kind of thing. And in a similar way, Christianity is a lot like the looking glass and the Seinfeld opposite world where everything works on principles opposite to those in the world around us. You want to be blessed? Be a blessing to others. You want to receive love? Give love. You want to truly live? Give yourself away. Die to yourself. You want to be honored? You must first humble yourself. In other words, you've got to Give up in order to go up. The way up is really down. And we're going to see this model. Have you ever heard the saying, your, at, your attitude determines your altitude? It's really, really true. See, we're not talking about being a doormat here in the going down, but being a humble person who's aligned with Christ. We're talking about power under control. Charles Swindoll, famous pastor, said, attitude to me is more important than facts. It's more important than the past, education, money, circumstances, failures, successes, what other people think or say or do to us. It's more important than appearance, giftedness, or skill. It'll make or break a company, a church, or a home. The remarkable thing is we have a choice every day regarding if we're going to embrace a good attitude or not. We cannot change our past. We can't change the fact that people will act in a certain way. We can't change the inevitable. The only thing we can do is play the one string we have, and that string is attitude. This means a lot to me here, this next uh, sentence he says. He said, I'm convinced that 10% of what happens to us is what happens to us in life, and 90% is how we react to it. Have you been through any hardships? Have you been through any hurts? Have you lost a dear loved one? During those times, the tendency is we can, we can move into anger, sometimes at the Almighty, sometimes at ourselves, blame ourselves, others, or, and then from that anger or or from that hurt, we move into anger, and sometimes it's even at God, or we can begin 
to align ourselves with the mind of Christ and, and, and work through that. Nothing wrong with anger to feel that, but then to work through that and come out on the other side. So to realize what happens to you really is 10%. The key is how you react to what's happened to you. That's 90%. And so we're in charge of our attitudes. So what I want to do this morning, I want to give you three characteristics of a great attitude for a man, for a woman, child, boy, girl, whatever. It's all going to apply here. I'm going to give you these up front. And then I'm going to give you five steps Jesus took on his journey of downward mobility. We're going to look at five demotions Jesus voluntarily signed up for. But let me give you these three characteristics of a great attitude. Number one, he or she values others above him or herself. So somebody with a great attitude, we're not saying that they put themselves down or think themselves less but they value others above themselves. Number two, he he or she serves others. You have this great opportunity coming up with the inside out to go out of these four walls and serve in your community. Why? Because you love Jesus. Why are they doing that? Are they getting paid? No, they they love Jesus. They're, They're wanting to help others in the community. They love the community because they love Jesus. Number three, he sacrifices or she sacrifices for others. So there's a sacrifice that comes, and you're going to see, again, Jesus is our model. So now I want to share um, the, the five demotions in just a moment. Let's start with that first one, valuing others above himself. He said, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than ourselves. I like the definition by Norman Vincent Peale. He said, humble people don't think less of themselves. They just think of themselves less. Did you get get that? They don't think less of themselves. They just think of themselves less. The Webster definition of humility is low to the earth and absence of pride. Now, would we all agree that the way of the world is not the way of humility? There was a famous boxer, Muhammad Ali. He's still alive. He was a heavyweight champion of the world at one time for many years. He has Parkinson's disease now, but he still has a great sense of humor. And at his peak, nobody ever accused him of being humble. He would brag about everything. He said he was so quick he could turn off the light and get in bed before it even was dark. He used to say, I float like a butterfly and I sting like a bee. I'm Muhammad Ali. And one time, true story, Ali was flying and the stewardess, they were in first class and she came and everybody had their seatbelts on except him. And she said, okay, you need to buckle up. And so Ali said, Superman don't need no (laughs) seatbelt. To which she replied, Superman don't need no plane either, so buckle up. And see, that's just the reality, is that humility, we want to have humility. Jesus modeled this. Look at verse 5, and we're going to read through verse 8 of Philippians chapter 2. Here we see a beautiful passage on the example of Jesus, who Jesus is, and what he's done. Verse 5, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing 
by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. These verses teach us the depths of Jesus' dedication to his downward mobility. Watch as Jesus signs up for five demotions. Watch as Jesus voluntarily descends the ladder into greatness in the eyes of God. Now, where does he start? He starts at the top. I'm talking the very top. It doesn't get any higher than that. This is a great passage on what we call Christology. Christology is the study of Christ, who he is and what he's done. If you ever talk to somebody who doubts the deity of Christ, this is a good passage to take them to. You meet them all the time nowadays. People like Jesus per se, most people in America, but they'll try and convince you, oh, he was a great man. Yeah, I agree with that. He was a great teacher, unbelievable communicator. He was a great prophet, they'll say. Yes, he was the son of God, absolutely. But then they'll say, but he wasn't God. He wasn't God. He just was a great man, great, you know, like others, but a great man, great prophet. This verse shows us very clearly that he was made in the nature of God and that he is God. So this is a great passage to take him to if you run into that. Here's demotion number one. You might want to write these down. Number one, Jesus emptied himself. In the NIV, it says he made himself nothing. The King James Version says he emptied himself. John, one of Jesus' main disciples in the Gospel of John, said in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Greek word for the word used in our English word translation there is the word logos. We get the word logo from that. It's a representation. So what John is getting across, he's using language that goes back to Genesis. Remember, in the beginning, God. And now he's, he's, he's like recreating. Now, in the beginning was the word, that's God. And he was with God and he was God. And the word here is talking about Jesus. So he's saying Jesus has always been. Jesus is God. So he started at the very top. Jesus was not an assistant to God. Jesus Christ has never been a vice president to God. He is not the Joe Biden of heaven, okay? He's not. Jesus Christ has never been a junior partner, but he's part of the full-fledged member of the Godhead, equal with God the Father, equal with God the Holy Spirit. In every way, shape, and form from eternity past. We call it the Trinity. It's three in one. We don't know, we, we can't wrap our minds around that, our finite minds, but it's true. Do you realize that Jesus was present and very involved in the creation of the world? and that he's ruled and reigned in eternity past. Therefore, all the divine prerogatives were equally his, along with the Father and along with the Holy Spirit. Now, why do I stress this? Because of the significance, we need to understand the point of his origin, where he started on his downward journey. He originated at the very top. Now, the text tells us that he emptied himself. He voluntarily relaxed his grip on his divine privileges. How willing are you, how willing am I, to relax our grip on our 
prerogatives on our privileges in our own life? How loosely do you hold positions? How loosely do you hold possessions? Most of us would put up a real fight if we had something precious taken from us. We'd scream if someone's trying to take something we own, like the seagulls in the movie Finding Nemo. Mine, 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 mine. I don't care what, who wants it or who needs it or who asks for it. If it's mine, it's mine. We are clingers by nature. We cling to power, possessions, Even the most mature Christians among us in this room wrestle constantly with letting go and relaxing our grip on those things we hold dear for the sake of Christ and for the glory of God. In the 1890s, very interesting uh, true story, there was a European wrestling champ. His name was Yusuf, Y-U-S-U-F, Yusuf. And he was, his nickname, you know, they all have nicknames. His nickname was the Terrible Turk. And so he was the champion in Europe, and he came over to wrestle the United States champion, who was Strangler Lewis. Now, the Turk was a big boy, all right? He weighed 350 pounds. And when they wrestled, he destroyed Strangler Lewis. Instead of giving him money, they gave him gold. So the way they, they paid him for his win was not through cash or gold, but, or, 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 or through um, check, but through gold. So they put this gold, a lot of gold, in this championship belt that they gave him for winning the championship. And on his way back to Europe on a ship, the ship began to sink. The terrible Turk jumped overboard and he started to sink. There was a lifeboat only 30 yards away and they were yelling off the lifeboat, let go of the belt, drop the belt. But he held on to the belt and he sank like a rock to the bottom of the sea, and he drowned. But isn't that what we do? We're clingers. We have something that's important to us. I'm going to stick up for my rights. I'm the head of my house. I'm the mother. I'm the father. I'm this. I'm that. Jesus gave up. Down the ladder he goes. Watch him go. I don't know about you, but I do this with my wife. If I'm right, I'm going to push that all the way. You know, I have that right. I'm going to, you know, and it can destroy a relationship, even when you're right. I've learned sometimes you have to win or, or lose some wars in order to win the battle. Have you found that to be true in relationships? There's compromise. There's humbling of oneself for the sake and for the love of the other person. By the way, the text says that he emptied himself. In the NIV, he became nothing. This does not mean for a moment that he became any less God. So understand, he did not divest himself of one ounce of his own deity. He's fully God. It simply means he lays aside those prerogatives that would keep him from becoming fully man. So he's fully God, fully man. That's the mystery of the Godhead. Now, Demotion 2, we're going to look at, pertains to this incredible miracle we call the incarnation. It means God became flesh. That's a a radical concept that happened. As I studied for this message, it kind of blew me away how violent and profane this must have really been for Jesus 
as God to come into this world and to endure what he endured. So here's demotion number two. Jesus became a human being. A human being. This boggles my mind to think of the transcendent creator taking on the appearance of flesh, taking on the appearance of a man like you and me, the creature. His humiliation went beyond just identifying with us as humans. He didn't ask for a mansion or a palace. He didn't ask for a chariot. He didn't come riding in in a Hummer. He didn't ask for servants or bodyguards or an entourage or a wardrobe or bling bling. He could have. Jesus did not appear on the landscape of this planet as an emperor, as a president, as a statesman, as an investment banker, as an all-star pitcher for the Arizona Diamondbacks, not Jesus. No, rather he comes on the scene as a vulnerable baby born in a stable to a blue-collar family. And he learned to trade in the hot Judean sun from his dad, Joseph, who was a carpenter. And as fully man, he was like us in all ways and yet without sin. The one who rides on the wings of the wind now has to walk and go through doors and ride on animals and eat and sleep. You get the picture. Think of the God of the universe saying, okay, mom, whatever you say, dad. He limited himself for our sake. I have a really good friend. He lives in Atlanta now. Played 14 years in the NBA. Um, I played in high school and then went to, on a college scholarship. We played together in college and stayed in touch. His name's Wayne Cooper. Uh, and Wayne, uh, while he was playing for the Trailblazers at the time, came to my home in LA and I had a basketball hoop in the backyard. And so we went in the back and I said, come on, Wayne, let's play one-on-one. Now, I'm 6'4", which was never tall for me because all my friends were 6'6", 6'8", 6'10". Wayne's 6'10", 240 pounds. So we're playing, Wayne could destroy me, okay? You get the picture? He's an NBA player. I was a a mediocre college player. And so we're playing one-on-one, and he's allowing me to do things. He's kind of coming down to my level. He's limiting his abilities in order to play with me. Imagine rubbing shoulders with the creatures, those that you created. Imagine the insults that Jesus endured. Move it, buddy. Get out of my way, Jew boy. By the way, who do you think you are, Jesus? Someone spiritual? Well, you're not. You should know your place and stay in your place. And you're just beginning to catch the glimpse of the violence of the incarnation of Jesus. What would it be like? Well, some would say it's like, here's how it is, it's like a man becoming an ant. That's the kind of same analogy. You know, how humbling would that be to be a man and become an ant? And I would say that's nowhere near the cataclysmic creature to condescend to the lower level of creatureness as it is for the creator to become the creature. Nowhere near. And there's really not all that much difference between humans and ants, but there's an incredible chasm between this transcendent God and human beings like you and me. Years ago, there was a British television series. It was called Upstairs, Downstairs. 
and rich, uh, aristocrats lived on the top floor upstairs, and the servants lived on the downstairs. They respected each other, but they were never friends. And upstairs people did not become friends with the downstairs people. Former uh, Fuller professor Lewis Smead tells his, about his days in Oxford, England, at Oxford University. He was a gentleman at the university, and he lived upstairs. And Mrs. Harris was a servant, and she lived downstairs. He called her Mrs. Hottis. She worked there for 50 years. The students at Oxford were gentlemen, and they lived upstairs. Mrs. Harris and her husband were servants, and they lived downstairs. Dr. Smead tried to help her with things, but she wouldn't have it. And out of his frustration one time, he came to her and said, Mrs. Harris, he said, I'm really not a gentleman. I'm an American. I thought that was funny. But if God is upstairs and we're downstairs, how can we become friends? Many of us grew up to feel that God was this distant being, this unapproachable God. But the Bible here is telling us in Jesus, God came downstairs, all the way downstairs, not just for a day, he brought his, tube, his toothbrush and his shaving cream and his pajamas, and he's here to stay. He's here. Can I get a squeaky amen from the 10 o'clock service? God has come downstairs, and at the foot of the cross, nobody's upstairs anymore. Jesus came downstairs in a regular body just like you and me, and he humbled himself, and as a result, the upstairs is now where he's come from and we don't need to be up there. He's down with us. The Bible says in Matthew 20, 28, who, who is Jesus? What did he come to do? It says the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is demotion number three. Jesus became a servant. He became a servant. Now Jesus becomes someone who teaches and feeds and serves and heals and saves who? Obstinate, arrogant, sinful people like me, like you, who refuse to even tip their hat his way. And the term servant is actually the word bondservant. In the Greek, it's this word doulos. Doulos, it's in relationship with kurios. Kurios is Lord. So we gotta understand what's ironic about this is that Jesus is Lord. He is kurios, but he gives up that kurios privilege to become the doulos, the bond slave, the servant. And there was one time the disciples were arguing about who is the greatest. Like, who's the greatest? No, I'm the greatest. No, and, and, and the mother's even saying, which one can sit on your right and your left hand of my two brothers, or my two sons, Jesus? And it's interesting, Jesus, he walks into the room, he strips down to his loincloth, which basically was the uniform of a servant, and he washes his disciples' feet. The God of the universe, on his knees, washing his disciples' feet, and basically saying, hey, go and do likewise. The menial task of foot washing was reserved for the lowest of slaves, and he modeled true servanthood and humility. Demotion number four, Jesus is obedient unto death. Unto death. He humbles himself to the point of death. Jesus, who breathed life into all of our lives, the one who initiates all of life in the universe and sustains it each and every second, Jesus now dies. 
The same Jesus who had the power to tell death, to overcome death, is now quiet and controlled. And he says, death, you win. This time, you win. It's high noon at the OK Corral, and the guy in the white hat refuses to draw. He drops his holster on the ground and says, go ahead, shoot me. I'm better than you, but shoot me. If the eternal life giver is giving up his life, isn't that enough down the downward mobility? Isn't that enough? He's given up his life. I can hear the angels at that point crying out to God saying, that's enough. Stop this hellishness. That's enough. But there's one more demotion. Demotion number five, Jesus died on a cross. How did Jesus die? Oh, I heard it was by drinking hemlock and lying on a foam mattress. No. Or taking cyanide, a cyanide tablet that assures a painless slumber into the blackness of death. Is that how Jesus died? No, Jesus voluntarily subjected himself to the mode of execution meant not simply to kill men, but to torture them slowly so that every gruesome sensation would be intensified and experienced to the fullest measure. That's how Jesus died. It was a criminal's death. You could not kill a Roman citizen by crucifixion. Jesus was Jewish and only criminals were executed and they executed Jesus as a criminal. Now, while this was going on, common men and women, imagine, could walk by him and laugh at him on the cross, spit at him, throw sticks and stones at him, yell profane accusations against him just to make the hellishness complete. And he sacrificed in the midst of this for us. This is how low, I mean, how low can any imagination go? I can't imagine it going any lower. This is the basement of human debasement. It's the greatest sacrifice of all time. He starts off in the highest position as God, and he ends up in the lowest position as a slave, as a criminal dying, executed on a cross. Now, it's ironic to me, the best-selling books in America are rags to riches story. The bottom to the top books. Yet the most important story in all of the world is a riches to rags story. It's a top to the bottom. This God descended and downscaled and demoted himself five different times. And who lost on purpose and who died and took your sin and my sin upon himself, and he shed his blood in our place so that the wrath of God would be satisfied. And so this is the greatest story that's ever been told or ever been written. And you might ask, why, Jesus? Why would you do this? And the reason is because he loves you that much. You matter to him more than life itself. John made it really clear in John 3, verse 16. He said, for God so loved the world, that's you, that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him might not perish, but might have eternal life. That's why he did it. Jesus' humiliation is not the end of the story. We saw last Sunday on Easter that God raised him from the dead. 
as the God-man, and humiliation leads to exaltation. Look at this last verse, these last uh, three verses we're going to look at. This is our conclusion of Philippians 2, verses 9 through 11. Paul says, in light of that, Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. First is the cradle, then the cross, then the crown. Paul tells us here that every knee, every knee that has ever lived will bow to Jesus Christ and proclaim his lordship and his deity in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. You know what that means? That means that Vladimir Putin is going to bow someday. Barack Obama is going to bow someday. Lady Gaga is going to bow someday. You and I will bow someday. Now, it just makes sense to me. Why not bow voluntarily out of love and appreciation for what God has done for you rather than because you have to out of the reality of the divinity of Christ. Isaac Watts, a tremendous songwriter, wrote a hymn called When I Survey the Wondrous Cross, and one lyric goes like this, Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. When you consider what Christ has done for you and voluntarily giving himself up for you to die in your place for your sin, to me the only logical, the only reasonable response is to give him your life, your all, your service for what he's done for you. If you've never done that, I want to give you a chance in just a moment to do that. But understand this, surprisingly here, the primary application of these last three verses is for the believer and not for the unbeliever. The implication of Paul's argument is that many believers need to bow the knee and confess with their tongue that Jesus is Lord and God in every area of their life. In the course of my Christian life, if you're like, you, if you're like me in any sense in this regard, there are areas in my life where I've included Jesus and there's areas where I've excluded Jesus. And Paul's point is one day you're going to bow your knee and confess with your tongue at the judgment seat of Christ that Jesus is Lord of every area of your life. So my question this morning would be what area of your life have you excluded Jesus from? Maybe it's a compartment in your marriage or your family or your work or your church or your personal life. Where is God calling you to let him be the Lord of your life? the master of your life. See, the good news of this passage is God will exalt believers who humble themselves. In the future, God will reward a life on earth that is lived in self-denial and humility. And your motivation really becomes the key. Why do you do it? You do it for the glory of God, not for selfish gain. When you do it for that motive, God will reward you. Jesus humbled himself and God lifted him up. He exalted him. And we're to have the same mind as Christ. And when Peter said this, he said, humble yourselves therefore under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. So the way up is down. And you gotta give up in order to go up. That's all I have to say about that. 
Would you bow your head and close your eyes just for a moment? Maybe you have never bowed your knee to Jesus Christ and become a believer. Oh, you believe there is a God and there is Jesus and you even believe that he died in a cross, but you've never made him Lord of your life. I want to give you an opportunity just to do that right now where you're seated. If you would pray this prayer to God, you and God, one-on-one. God, I admit that I am a sinner and I deserve hell and punishment, but I believe in you I believe you died in my place on the cross. And this day, this moment, I want to give my life to you. I want you to be Lord of my life. Thank you, Jesus. As your heads are bowed, those of you who prayed that prayer, congratulations. You enter into the kingdom as you've asked God to be the Lord of your life. Those of you who are Christians, who are here, you're going to bow too. We're all going to bow. We're going to do it because we love him, because we're identified with him. And I would say to you, why not bow in that area on this earth where you're holding him back? He's only going to bring good to whatever that is you're holding on to. Would you, just where you're at, if you're willing, begin that process of loosening the grip and say, God, I want to begin and give this to you. Let him have that. God, I want you to be Lord in this area of my life as well. Father, thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you for the model of Jesus. Thank you for your church here at Compass. I pray you continue to guide and mold them into your image as a humble church, as humble individuals for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for joining us today. Why not ask God to change your life so you can go and change your world for Him? To find out more about our church online, go to www.compasschurch.info and we'll see you next time.